We're wrapping up our study of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're going to look at the last part of the chapter beginning at verse 14. Laodicea is a stern letter. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. It's stern, but it's also a very loving letter. This is the one word of affirmation Jesus will say, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. This verse needs to be seen as the interpretive key to this whole letter. Because even though Jesus is speaking sternly, he is speaking with love. It's it's like a father speaking to his children, knowing that they need to hear what he's saying and saying the hard truth, but making sure his kids never doubt that he loves them. When we get to the point where we read, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, it's worth remembering that Jesus is writing to what he refers to as the church. And Jesus knows who the church is. It's his blood-bought children. And he's talking about a hard truth with the hope that the rebuke will land. So let's read it with that in mind. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not even realize that you are in fact wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea was the most secular of all the cities. Now that isn't to say that they don't have all the same religions and issues that were pervasive throughout in this whole region. Emperor worship, Judaism, Judaizers, but yet in this letter there's absolutely no mention of Jewish zealots, of heretics, of false prophets, or even of persecution. And that's because Laodicea is the most affluent of all the cities. And as is true today, the more affluent a culture, the less impact religion has on that culture. We're doing well, we're doing okay. That was Laodicea. 
And what we're going to learn is that that whole idea of self-sufficiency had worked its way into the congregation. Here's a picture of the theater that was there. There were three things in particular that contributed to Laodicea's wealth and that were a source of great pride and self-sufficiency for them. The first was a banking system. Where they sat strategically allowed them to be a banking center for various cities. They stamped their own gold coins. The second was a fashion industry. This is sort of like New York City. They had Wall Street and they had the garment district. Sheep in the area produced a deep gray wool. And so black was always in fashion in Laodicea. The third thing they were famous for was a medical center there that had innovated treatments, especially for ear, eyes, and nose. There was this thing called the Phrygian salve, which was used to put on the eyes to draw out infection. Now, if you've read with me, you already know where Jesus is going here. Because like all the other letters, Jesus is using their local context as an object lesson or a metaphor for their spiritual condition. But there's an additional metaphor that sets the whole stage for the condition of the church. And that's his first statement to them. Let's say it together. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I remember growing up hearing sermons about this, that hot was good and cold was bad. It was like my love for you, you know, my love's hot, my, my love has turned cold. He's talking about being either fervently committed to Jesus or not committed at all. And the idea was Jesus was more offended that people ride the fence than that they reject him outright. How, how many have heard that interpretation of this? Yeah. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you think that bears up when you look at the rest of Scripture? Let me quote Peter. God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, this is where understanding the metaphors that Jesus is working with really help us understand the characterization he's making. Laodicea was part of three sister cities. Colossae and Hierapolis were the other two cities. Laodicea, even though they were in a river valley, their local water source was pretty bad. It wasn't good drinking. Colossae had an amazing water supply, this mountain spring. It was cool, it was pure. Hierapolis was known for mineral springs, hot springs. How many of you have ever bathed in a natural hot spring? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Many people still today go to Hierapolis to bathe in the hot springs there. Now I want to show you a picture of an aqueduct between Hierapolis and Laodicea. It's possible that it was the medical center's idea to bring that hot mineral water to the city so that they could treat people. And it was a failed experiment, because the problem was, as the water took its six-mile run from Hierapolis, what temperature do you think it was by the time it reached Laodicea? Say it. Was lukewarm. Now I want to tell you three quick stories. When Vit was pregnant with our first child, we were touring. At the time, I traveled as a concert artist, and Vit accompanied me. And uh, we scheduled our time off out in Wyoming so that we could visit the Grand Tetons and, and Yellowstone National Park. And our first stop 
was Thermopolis, Wyoming. Anybody know Thermopolis? Anybody ever visited there? Famous for its mineral hot spring baths. Our campground had its own hot spring. So Vit and I thought, well, we'll go in, but Vit was concerned, six months pregnant, we'll overcook Tommy, you know. <laughs> so it happened that there was a doctor there. He gave Vit counsel, and she went in, and it was amazing. It was about 34 degrees outside, steam. It was amazing. Story number one. Story number two. 40 years ago, I used to do a lot at Monadnock Bible Conference, and the one mountain that I've ever climbed is Mount Monadnock. Some of you I saw on Facebook climbed it this fall. The most climbed mountain in the world. Once a week during youth camp, all the campers and counselors had to climb that mountain. And a third of the way up that mountain, there was this cold mountain spring that everybody stopped at. And you intentionally came with only a little bit of water in your canteen because you were going to fill it on that spring. It was cold. It was refreshing. It was amazing. And it stayed cold all the way up the mountain. Story two. Story three. When I was a youth pastor, I took a group of young people down to the Dominican Republic where my brother was a missionary to help lay the foundation and floor for a church they were building. The professionals were doing all the rebar, and we were doing all the shoveling and the mixing and the carrying. It was August, and it was really hot, and we finally took a break, and I went over to where the water bottles were, and I took one, and I opened it and couldn't wait to drink it, and I took a drink, and how many of you have ever tasted something where it was the exact temperature of the inside of your mouth? (laughs) It's weird, isn't it? What do you think I did as soon as that happened? I spit it out. I thought there was something wrong with it. Because you're used to water having some effect. It's either cooler or warm. What Jesus is saying is hot water is useful, cold water is refreshing, but you are neither. You're useless to me. You leave me unsatisfied. In fact, you make me sick. Now he goes on and he explains what that lukewarmness is. And it's the sin of self-sufficiency. Let's go on and look at what he says. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is remarkable. Now, I'm going to be talking about affluence. And if you're visiting here, I want you to know this is not a recurring theme. But when we come to it in the Bible, we need to teach it. And here's the point I want you to see that we learned from Laodicea. The greatest attack of the enemy of the church in Western civilization is not persecution. It's affluence. Because what happens is that we become self-sufficient instead of God-sufficient. And this was the trap that Laodicea had fallen into. Now, in saying that, I recognize that we are a mixed congregation economically. There are some here with, with affluence. And I want to be careful that you don't hear me say that just because you have affluence that you fit into Laodicea. The issue for them is that they saw their affluence as a sign of God's blessing. They're not just saying, I don't need anything physically. They're saying, I'm satisfied spiritually. I I don't need anything. Now, there are others of you here who would call yourself anything but affluent. You're making it paycheck by paycheck. But there's a message for you here today, too. 
Because in your pursuit of establishing yourself, you also could be worshiping affluence instead of worshiping Jesus. You think the answer to your needs is what other people who are sitting around you have. I want you to know there is a type of wealth that has nothing to do with what's in your checking account. And I don't mean to say that we don't care about that. But there's a type of wealth that is far richer. And what we're about to see is a congregation that thinks they're doing great because they're affluent. And Jesus says, you're destitute in the things that really matter. There are forms of this type of Christianity today. You hear me talk about it when I have the opportunity. It's the gospel that says if you're good enough as a Christian, you will be wealthy. You will be healthy. You will say, I have need of nothing. See? Jesus said you cannot worship God and money. And what we have done is said, okay, I will still worship money, but I will call it Jesus. And I'm using my faith as a means to prosperity. And in doing that, I'm actually living in spiritual poverty. Now, this is what he's describing here. Using those three aspects of the city, he describes who they really are. He says, you are poor. You may be rich with the gold of men, but you are destitute in the things of God. He says, you are blind. You may cure physical blindness, but you are blind to your own condition and to spiritual things. And from my view of you spiritually, you may be at the top of the fashion world, but you have failed to look after and care for your inner being. You have failed to adorn yourselves with the things of the Spirit. And so you're naked. It's amazing to think that a group of people can be called the church, can be the children of God, can be showing up every week thinking, man, things are going great. Did you see the size of the offering last week? And look at all we're able to do, and look at this amazing space, and, and the staff, and the gifts that we have in the church, and the talent. It's amazing to think that there's a church saying, we have so much and God looking at them and saying, in fact, you have so little. You have so little. That's a warning to all of us. He carries these metaphors through now, and he gives them a remedy for their self-sufficiency. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your nakedness, and salve to be put on your eyes so you can see. It's interesting that he uses the term buy in this case because they're saying, I have acquired wealth, I have acquired much. And so he's speaking on their terms. And what he's saying is, here are the things that you need to reinvest yourself into if you're to get back to the life that is truly life, the life that is the actual abundant life that I came to give. This is the pathway for you. And the first thing he says is, you need to buy from me my gold. God is the one and only source for true wealth, which is not found in the money or gold that's in our checking accounts or in our banks. And our time needs to be spent in accumulating these graces above everything else. 
That's what Jesus said so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When your faith and your religion produces more in your bank account than in your eternal account, then you are guilty of the self-sufficiency of the Christians in Laodicea. He goes on, buy from me white clothing. In contrast to the famous dark wool of their fashion, white clothing is about spiritual purity that comes from repentance. Make no mistake, self-sufficiency is a sin from which we need to repent in order to be clean and move past it. Talk about this whole self-sufficiency thing. In AD 60, when Rome offered money to rebuild, just like they did in Philadelphia, due to those earthquakes that started in 17 AD. When Rome came in and offered money to rebuild Laodicea, they turned it down. They said, no, we're going to rebuild on our own. And they did. That just speaks of the immense wealth there, and it speaks of the self-sufficiency. And there's nothing wrong with that in the right context. But it is not the right context when it comes to the things of God. We need Christ-sufficiency. We need selflessness. We need self-crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he goes on and he says, forget your Phrygian eye salve and treatments. You need my salve. Caring for your physical eyes is a waste of time if you are living in spiritual blindness to the things of God if you are unable to see yourselves and the world around you as he does. Now, one of the traps of having much, one of the deceits that we can fall into is to believe that must mean that I'm better than most, more successful before God, more gifted, more worthy. And the trap of that is you become less emotionally intelligent You become less aware of the condition of your own heart. People begin treating you in a way that, wow, you're something. And you begin to think, well, I deserve that treatment. You expect to influence people. You expect to be honored in this way. And the problem is when those people want to speak into your life, you tend to break those relationships. I've I've seen uh, some very wealthy people over the years bounce from one church to another, one relationship to another because people stopped being their groupies and wanted to help them see an area in their life. That's the sin of Laodicea. It's the sin that says, I have need of nothing. Do you understand what I'm saying there? And here's the thing, that can infect us no matter where we are at economically. If we are pursuing the same path that the Laodiceans are sitting on the top of, you get to the top, You're still poor, blind, and naked just like you were at the bottom. If you do not become wealthy in the things of God, this is not a a sermon against affluence. God blesses people so that they can bless others. And this church has people in it that are submitted to Jesus Christ, and you are blessed because of their generosity. But this is to help us understand that our church, as we continue to grow, there are many ways to be affluent, yes? 
It's not just about money. It's about resources. It's about numbers of people. It's about the ability to do things. As we continue to grow, the challenge will always be to keep Jesus at the center. This is the offer that Jesus makes to them. This is remarkable. Say it with me. Here I am. I stand at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. Now, where you may have heard this verse most often used is when someone is leading someone to make a commitment to Jesus as their Savior. Maybe it's gone something like this. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. And he's just waiting for you to open the door, and if you do, he'll come in, and he'll forgive you your sin, he'll give you a new life, and you'll have a personal relationship with him. How many have heard the verse used in that way? Sure, plenty of us. And the notion is absolutely right. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he is right here waiting for you to invite him in and to bring you into new life. That is absolutely true. But that is not what this verse is saying. What door is it that Jesus is standing on the outside of? It's his church. That's the scandal here. They have become so successful, both as individuals and as a congregation. They're doing great. And somewhere along the line, Jesus left the building. And they didn't even know it. This is the defining point in terms of our true wealth. Where is Jesus in it? That's the question. Whether you have a a small amount or a great amount, the question is always, where is Jesus in the midst of it? And the temptation is always to push Jesus out of it because once we have it, it's hard not to hold on to it above everything else. That's the issue. How scandalous that a church could be going along, doing everything that they want to do and thinking, I have need of nothing. How scandalous that they can be saying that and Jesus isn't even in the building and they don't even know it. And how merciful, how God-like for Jesus to be saying, I'm ready anytime you will open up to come back into the center of things and bring you back to the life that you were called for. That is our merciful God. The painting that is most famous of this scene was by um, William Hunt. I found a version to show you, but it's such a dark painting, you wouldn't be able to see it in this room. But you go home, you look it up, Jesus knocking at the door, hunt. Google that, you'll see the picture. And if you look very carefully at the door, you'll notice something important about it. There's no handle on the door. The door must be open from the inside so true to this letter. Where is Jesus in your door? And I'm talking to Christians just like Jesus was. I'm not just talking to those of you that are still deciding if you'll invite him in in the first place. I'm asking you to answer the question that Jesus is raising to Christians in Laodicea. Is he on the outside of the things you possess and love the most? 
and in which you find your pride and find sufficiency. And if he is, do you understand that from his perspective, all the things you think are going well for you, what he sees is a destitute person who's in need of the riches that will truly last for all of eternity? And who is this Jesus that is standing outside the door? We've seen a glimpse of Jesus with each letter. And in this particular case, this is how Jesus presents himself. Let's say it together. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The word amen in Hebrew means foundation. It's the bottom line. The amen, the faithful and true witness, is one expression. Because Jesus is everything our life is meant to be built on, he is the one thing that is faithful and absolutely true. He can be counted on. None of the things you have and possess that you're counting on will be faithful to you for the rest of your life, and they will certainly not be true. Jesus is the only thing worth building our life on. He is the amen. But he's more than that. He is also the ruler of God's creation. He's the Jesus of Philippians 2, where Paul says, God has now exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess. That's all of creation, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is this Jesus who stands outside the door when we become self-sufficient. It is this Jesus who is meant to be the foundation on which our whole life is built and the authority under which it is all managed. It is this Jesus, that prayer, that ancient prayer, is meant for us to invoke Christ below me, Christ above me, Christ to my right hand, Christ to my left, Christ before me, Christ behind me. I live for Christ alone. May we be that church as God continues to work here and places much in our hands in terms of resource and influence and the ability to just do so much in this world around us, may we not fall prey to the subtle attack of that success and get to the point where we don't even recognize that Jesus doesn't have to show up. May we always be Christ only, Christ below us, Christ above us. Christ alone. And may that be true of each of you. Let's pray. Father, this has been a, a, a very meaningful study. We thank you for it. We've seen ourselves in each letter. We've seen what we could be, both bad and good. We've seen our own potential weaknesses, our own frailty, and we've seen your glory. We've seen what you call us to. We've seen what you love and what you are willing to boast about in us. And Father, we ask that uh, this would be a place where Jesus reigns, whose name is spoken and honored, who is the purpose at the center of all that we do. In his name we pray, amen.